I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 47 for September. I'm Duncan, and happy anniversary, Simon. And listeners, if you've listened since episode one, you've been listening to Spoiler Alert for five years. Five years. Hopefully not in a row. Congratulations. Yeah, amazing. Congratulations to you, yeah. Uh, look, I'm Simon, um, and I, I don't know if I've said this before, but I think a great candidate for a video game adaptation would be Ghosts and Goblins. Uh, the story of a brave knight journeying to the pits of hell, battling zombies and demons to rescue his beloved and occasionally being forced to run around in his undies to do so. <laughs> I used to love playing that game. Oh, awesome game. Mm. I love that. And they had those arcade games came out on uh, like really budget versions of them on Spectrum 48K, right. which is what I had, or Commodore 64 or yep. Amstrad's people had. Um, and, yeah, it just wasn't quite the arcade. Like, the colours weren't – they didn't have the multitude of colours. It was a bit two-toned colours. Um, but, yeah, I love the arcade versions of all those games, Ghosts and Goblins, Paperboy. Yeah. That's great. Good stuff. So what have you been watching? Uh, well, look, I watched Mario Bava's hallucinogenic but messy 1970s yellow hatchet for the honeymoon because of the title, obviously, yeah. uh, also known as Blood Brides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you'd expect, about 20 other different titles, depending on where it's being sold around <laughs> the world, one of which has it as a sequel to something else, yeah. uh, which is ridiculous. That happens in a couple of the Italian ones, doesn't it? It happens in a lot of them, actually. There's mm. a whole, yeah, yeah, um, just repurposing them. Yeah, there was one that came out as Last House on the Left Part 2, even though it clearly wasn't. <laughs> uh, but look, Hatch for the Honeymoon uh, left me a little bit cold. It's as bright and gorgeous to look at as any of other of Barber's films, but it lacked that narrative spark that you expect from the inventor of the giallo genre. It does have some hammy overacting, though, mm-hmm. and a Patrick Bateman-like lead, <laughs> uh, who, unlike Bateman, does have at least one person who suspects him of being the psycho he actually is. Right. Unfortunately, that one person is a police detective, Who's playing the long game, you know? Right. Yeah. So, which means plenty more brides end up with hatchets to the face before the absurd climax. <laughs> uh, good fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, sticking with Giallos, I saw The Editor. Uh, this is the latest from Astron 6, the film collective behind the loving parody pastiche of Manborg, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed immensely, and Father's Day, which I haven't seen. Um, this time, they've made a note-perfect well, kind of note perfect. Every, every note has played it like an ear shrieking eleven. Uh, comic twist on the entire giallo genre, uh, replete with lurid, lurid colours, black glove killers, fountains of blood, bad acting, including a wondrously wooden Paz de la Herta. Uh, no doubt distracted by a court case against the makers of the nurse, um, and wild plot twists. Uh, insane. Uh, the ending makes zero sense, and I don't think it's supposed to. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of the genre, so there was plenty for me to enjoy. But man, is this like it's it's an ultra specific kind of parody <laughs> film to be making, eh? Yeah, you're not going to get much of an audience, eh? No, it's be broad appeal. No, not at all. It's got Udo Kier though. Ah, oh, Udo, which, which I'm pretty happy about. I saw In a World, a charming low budget comedy about a young woman making her way in the cutthroat male dominated world of voiceover artists. Right. Yeah, and eventually having to butt heads against a legend of the world of trailer stars, her own father. Mm. Uh, written, directed, and starring Lake Bell, in a world as rambling, a little shaggy, but also a little bit great, I thought. Super cast, too. Uh, Rob Corddry, Ken Marino, Dimitri Martin, and this hugely fun performance by Fred Melamed as the family's silver-backed patriarch and the man with the golden voice. Right. Um, yeah, no, really great fun. I recommend that. I also enjoyed the energetic J.J. Abrams sequel to his reboot of the Star Trek franchise, right. Star Trek Into Darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, befuddling plot mechanics aside some of which frustrate me still, this sequel delivered in action, performances, and tweaks to Trek lore, even if it is kind of suffered by essentially rewriting the best Star Trek film of them all. Yeah, I think they kind of mishandled um, Khan in that. I, I wasn't quite sold on Benedict Cumberpatch's. No, I thought, he, I thought he was great, actually. I'm not right. sure he's Khan, yeah. but he, he, I thought he was a good villain. Yeah, but, you know, um, that kind of. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing was in, um, and s- we're going to spoil some things here, folks, yeah. so you've probably seen this film now. Um but having the Kirk sacrifice moment, which was, of course, Spock's sacrifice in the mm. original film, and giving Spock the Khan line, yeah. because those were such iconic moments and so well done in the original, they fell flat for me in, the, in, yeah. in this vision. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Uh, and I finally caught up with Keanu Reeves' grim yet comic book style tale of revenge, John Wick. Yeah. 
uh, when his puppy is slain by an entitled Russian gangster son, former merciless assassin, Wick goes back to his old ways and begins plowing through an endless wave of bad guys <laughs> in what's probably the most headshot crazy viewing experience this side of the box set marathon of The Walking Dead. Um, I found John Wick to be an absolute blast. Really right. enjoyed it. Yeah. Excellent. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's worth it. And uh, how about yourself? What have you been watching? I've watched quite a mixed bag of films uh, this month. I started with a Nicole Kidman double bill. Uh, first with the recent amnesia thriller, Before I Go to Sleep, with Colin Firth. Right. It's a fairly ordinary story, I've got to say, that has a touch of the what lies beneath to it. Um, then I saw 2001's Birthday Girl, uh, Ben Chapman. Yes. What, whatever happened to him? No, I know. Yeah, totally. I um, mean, he was great in The Thin Red Line, and then he did this, and oh, I have to search around IMDb. But uh, Ben Chapman plays an English bank clerk who orders a Russian bride and receives Nicole and a whole bunch of trouble. Uh, and uh, it was a really entertaining story. The first half is especially strong and impressive performances from Kidman and Vincent Cassell, largely in Russian dialogue. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. And especially that first half, I thought it looks like got off to a real um, ripping start and, you know, quite menacing. You knew right. something was not quite right. So have you seen it? No, I haven't. Yeah, I recommend checking it out. Yeah, it sounds like the sort of fun I'd enjoy. Yeah. And uh, I saw The Punk Singer, which is an enlightening documentary about musician and riot girl pioneer Kathleen Hanna, uh, explaining her band Bikini Kill's feminist ideology, their influence, her battles with disease, and her self-imposed isolation from the music scene. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a great documentary to check out, especially if you don't probably heard her name. She um, was kind of quite best known for her brushes with Nirvana, and she's the mm. person who came up with um, Smells Like Teen Spirit. She um, spray painted it on Kurt Cobain's wall. And right. said, Kurt smells like Teen Spirit because he was going out with this girl who had a deodorant called Teen Spirit. Right. And um, <laughs> she spray painted <laughs> it on his wall. And uh, she famously got into like a fight with Courtney Love and, and all this kind of stuff. But she's a really fascinating character. And uh, she's married to Ed Rock out of uh, Beastie Boys. I had no idea. I'm a huge Beastie Boys fan. I was like, oh, I had no idea. Uh, I saw Unity from Sean Monsoon, the director of Earthlings. Comes a documentary uh, voiced over by over almost like 100 famous actors. Uh, it's a real esoteric meditation on the concept of society and human rights, and it contains one of the strongest, most effective opening scenes I've almost ever seen, and certainly in documentaries. Um, it's worth checking out. I saw it at the Academy, and it helped seeing it in a cinema, because like I said, it's quite meditative, yeah. but it's quite um, rambling. Um, but yeah, really, really, I don't know if enjoyable is the right word, but you know, really thought-provoking. Uh, and Sidney Pollock's steady hand is all over the still-gripping 70s thriller Three Days of the Condor packed with government paranoia and a really assured performance from Robert Redford. Have you seen this? I haven't. Oh, really good. If you get a chance to check it out, Three Days of the Condor still really holds up that whole 70s paranoia thriller. It's probably, um, along with, uh, I think Warren Beatty did Parallax View. Um, Parallax View's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and this is right up there. This is really, especially Redford. He's, you kind of forget how great he was back then. You think of him Butch Cassidy, and then you kind of think of him as a director, and you kind of miss him sometimes in those acting roles, and he's really good in it. And then I saw Narrow Margin, uh, 1990s train-bound thriller that takes inspiration from Hitchcock. Uh, Gene Hackman is he's another one. I, was, I forgot how much I like Gene Hackman. He's as effortless as a DA bringing a witness to a mob hit. Uh, sorry, a witness to a mob hit to testify. And Anne Archer is the witness, and she is the most useless character. Like, for all the use of her character, she could be played by a mannequin under Hackman's arm, <laughs> just like as he leaps from train compartment to train <laughs> compartment. Honestly, it's almost watching worth watching for that. Because I can't believe that any actor would just look at that script and go, you've got to be kidding. I literally do nothing. And I virtually say nothing and I do nothing to propel this plot forward. It's incredible. Um, but Hackman's great. You know? Right. <laughs> wow. He, he, he's really good in it. And uh, I was like, oh, I really like Hackman. Pity he just disappeared. Um, I saw Itu Mama Tambien, your, which is your mother too. Alfonso Curran's calling card about two young friends traveling across Mexico with a runaway older woman. The awkward love triangle that develops is both funny and touching and particularly impressive in making what I initially thought quite annoying, callow youth morph into characters you really actually empathize with. Uh, have you seen this one as well? Uh, a long time ago. Yeah, really good. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and after this Mexican treat, I continued to travel the globe a little with a few stops across Europe, starting in Poland with last year's Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Language Film, Ida. Right, this means you can lead it to me now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And uh, it's, it's striking, well, if I don't ruin it now, but uh, striking black and white cinem- cinematography and the story of a Catholic nun discovering her Jewish roots, boasting two really strong female leads, Ida, or I think it's Ida is how they say it, is bleak and cold. And the opening few minutes encompasses everything you see in parodies of art house cinema. It's got black and white, silent, freezing locations stacked with religious imagery. Uh, it's, yeah, like, it's almost, it's beautifully done, but it's almost, like, tipping into that. You know when you see, like, Family Guy or yeah, someone, like, yeah. to, you know, take the piss out of foreign language films? It's exactly that, the opening. It's hilarious. Yeah, I dropped by Italy for Nothing Left to Do But Cry. It's starring and directed by two of Italy's comedic heavyweights from the 80s, uh, Benini and the late Massimo Troisi, who many will know from Il Postino. It involves two men going back in history from 1984 to 1492. Uh, it takes all in Italy, and it, it takes a little while to get going, but the second half has an entertaining series of tri- time-travelling shenanigans and a, and a really clever scene where the men try to inspire Leonardo da Vinci with their description of future inventions, uh, despite not knowing anything about how they work. So they're just kind of like, you know, train. Yeah. And like, yep. the, Vinci's like, okay, so how does, it, you know, how does that go? And they're like, it's just on the tracks and moves forward. Okay, uh, you know, typewriter, and then they're just like wheeling out all these things, and that he's like, "What do you mean?" Like, it's on tracks. Uh, I really like that. That was pretty clever. And I finished in uh, Deutschland because the German Film Festival was here, and it was free. Uh, oh, can, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I had no idea until we went to get um, our tickets. I sat there, I said, "I'll have two coffees and two tickets to the movies," and they said that'll be ten dollars. I said, "Yeah, we've got tickets." They said, "That's free." That's amazing. Yeah. And it was at the Academy Cinemas, and they, they put on a week's worth of films, and the one I saw was Schoenfeld Boulevard, a coming-of-age tragicom that exceeded expectations on the comedy while falling short on the emotional weight. Uh, has an excellent lead performance that reminded me of Dawn Wiener and Welcome to the Dollhouse. So it was about this kind of overweight, um, shy girl, kind of coming to a sexual awakening, but it's done very well. It had some you know, great moments. It was interesting, though, like I say, one of those films, the comedy worked really well and everyone was into it, but it didn't quite have that emotional weight, even though that it was that's what it was aiming for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's worthwhile. But yeah, I couldn't believe this. all of the German films, so you know for next year. That's amazing to me. Yeah, if yeah. I'd known, I would have gone earlier. But yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I'm really hungry, Mum. Talk, talk, talking. Don't you ever stop. I need to sleep. I'm sorry, Mommy. I was just really hungry. If you're that hungry, why don't you go and eat shit? And so, Simon, what's the news? Well, a news that is exciting possibly only to me. H.P. Lovecast's The Colour Out of Space is going to get the big screen treatment from director Richard Stanley. Colour is my absolute favourite, favourite Lovecraft story, but it's perhaps not an ideal source for a film adaptation Mm -hmm. since it's all creeping menace, decay, madness, and a a little bit of body horror. Uh, But it's not just the story that fascinates me. It's the fact that Richard Stanley is climbing back into the director's chair. Stanley's last film was Dust Devil back in 1992. Right. Uh, But he's possibly most famous for being fired from his own film, The Island of Dr. Moreau, (laughs) uh, being replaced by John Frankenheimer, and then sneaking back onto the set disguised as one of the man creatures. So interesting stuff all around. And it's a project that Stanley's been trying to get made for years. You can even find a faux trailer he put together as a pitching tool back in 2013 on Vimeo. It gives kind of a, a bit of a tease as to what may, what he may yet make. I mean, fingers crossed. Oh, that sounds great. Mm, yeah. It's, it's a fantastic short story. It's, I just think it's sublime. So yeah. really excited by this. It's kind of interesting. Lovecraft seems to be cropping up. And maybe it's just because I'm aware of it because you're such a fan. But it seems to be cropping up more and more. People discussing him. Yeah, uh, well, guys like Del Toro are a big fan. and Yeah. 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 Well, good news, everyone. Ridley Scott says either Prometheus 3 or 4 will eventually tie into the original Alien series. So that means around 2027, we should not only have hoverboards and no need for roads, but we will have travelled across the bridge between Ridley Scott's two alien endeavours. The journey will there will be visually striking, narratively confusing, and motivationally incomprehensible. Meanwhile, Prometheus 2 will be subtitled Paradise Lost, and will have something to do with the engineer's home planet, and apparently some tenuous links to Alien and Ripley and Alien 5 and Chessbursters and Neil Blomkamp. But I'm ultimately an optimist, so... I'm hoping that as we get closer to this genre-changing 1975 original, the films will become better and better. You know, the way Star Wars prequels did, right? Right, right, guys? Hello, is this thing on? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Star. I mean, I do think that. The, uh, I'm not going to get into Star Wars. Before. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about all this. I, you know, I just don't know. I'm, I'm like you, I guess, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah. I just cracks me up there. Uh, you know, the way that Scott's talking, it's all those, keeping his cards close to his chest. Yeah. Like, well, you guys wait and see how this links into Alien and, and links into Ripley. And it's like, I don't know if we don't care. Yeah, and like, we're Alien fans as well. It's yeah, not but like. The thing is, we cared about Prometheus, but now yeah. we're like, oh, not anymore. Yeah, yeah. so actually. I I'm cautiously optimistic because I think my expectations are quite significantly lowered now. Sure. All right, Nightmare on Elm Street is getting rebooted. Oh, Again. thank God! Yes, yes. And in what seems like a surprisingly <laughs> sound idea, Robert England is claiming that they're going to remake Part Three rather than reestablish the character with another origin story. Mm-hmm. Look, I, that seems like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Part Three was always a solid fan favorite. Yep. Uh, it did a lot to set up the mythology of the Freddy character. It was the first film to introduce the outrageous kills that became. Um, such a fixture of the series. I'm not sure how much stock we can put in England, who may just be speculating, hopefully. Mm. Uh, I mean, he does talk about having a cameo as an elderly dream expert, perhaps, so I think maybe he's just you know, mm. looking out for himself here. But the new Elm Street is coming, and as ideas go, England's isn't terrible. Certainly a safer bet than trying to reboot the series, starting with episode two. Yeah. I don't know. Episode two would be pretty magnificent. If it's yeah, I'd like, like to that. see it, eh? Just shot for shot remake. Only they could insert some sort of homoeroticism into it. Yeah, that's mm. right. Now that you say that, I think three is probably a good place to start. Yeah, I could see you starting with part three. And I think it's a crowd-pleasing one, and I think it makes sense. Like, I think actually out of the stories, three's not necessarily my favourite, but I think out of the stories, it's the most straightforward and accessible. Yeah, and it does a lot to set up the franchise, and a lot of what we remember about Freddy and his mythology comes from part three. Yeah. Um, Man, I hope Dokken are available. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. De Niro stormed out of an interview for his latest gentle comedy, The Intern, when asked about how he avoided going into autopilot on these films. It seems unnecessary and a little churlish when he could have just answered with the truth, I don't avoid it. Um, After all, he is in a Nancy Myers film, which has a final joke on the trailer that laughs at the fact he is only now joining Facebook. That's their button-out joke for the trailer. You know, like that's hilarious or something. Conversely to Bobby's reaction, co-star Anne Hathaway, on the other hand, cried while talking about the honour of working with De Niro in an interview, to which he looked as comfortable and impressed as you'd expect him to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. yeah, I don't know. Funny one, this one. Um, you know, he can walk out of interviews if he wants, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. He's doing it the right over the years. Oh, absolutely. He, he can be a touchy bastard if he wants to be. But you're right, this is, this is clearly that touched touch a nerve because it's exactly what he's doing. I think it's exactly... I, I yeah. think that he knew in that point that he... He had been called on it. Yeah, he had been called yeah. on it, and he didn't have a response to come back to it. Yeah. He's like, well, I don't have to. It's the intern. Yeah. You know? have you, yeah, you know what this film is? Yeah. It's like asking him on Meet the Fockers 4 or something. It's yeah, like, you know. I don't need to try with this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and in Sean Penn suing people news, Sean Penn is suing someone. <laughs> After Lee Daniels, the creative hit series Empire, rushed to the defense of his star Terrence Howard in his long list of assault allegations and actual arrests as well. Uh, saying, that poor boy ain't done nothing different than Marlon Brando or Sean Penn, suggesting, I think, that racism is somehow involved and not the simple act of beating up women. Penn lodged a $10 million lawsuit. <laughs> $10 million. Wow. The lawsuit claims that Daniels implies Penn, an icon, humanitarian journalist, and peace activist, among many other things, is guilty of ongoing crimes against women. Uh, also, Penn was never convicted of striking Madonna with a baseball bat or of the alleged nine-hour beating he delivered to her. So, you know, there is that, eh? Yeah. Um, thing is, I was only kind of dimly aware of Penn's previous offending, yeah. uh, let alone Terrence Howard's. All this lawsuit has done is highlight the ugly things these men have done. It's such a ludicrous sum as well to cover, what, Penn's feelings? Because his new image he's constructed for himself doesn't jibe with his abusive past. Uh, I can't help but think this ridiculous suit is actually doing the opposite of what Sean Penn thinks it will. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's just um, putting a... A spotlight on it. Yeah, I think that um, Lee Daniels' interview would have just been forgotten and yeah. brushed over and people would have ignored it. Absolutely. Or, you know. It's not like Marlon Brando's estate is suing him. Uh, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stick with pointing out dead people. I yeah. think that's the safe option. Eh? Yeah. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. Are you ripping my car? Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. 
You dick! And welcome to No Comps, the section of the podcast where we go and see a new release film and then report back to you guys. And this month we went and saw Pixels. Um, now, five years ago on our first ever podcast, we went to see Just Go With It, an Adam Sandler film. Um, and so we thought five years later, let's watch another one. Uh, so, look, Pixels, directed by Chris Columbus and starring Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Michelle Monaghan, Peter Dinklage, Brian Cox, and Sean Bean. Since losing the Donkey Kong World Champs in 1982, Adam Sandler's character has achieved little until aliens attack Earth in the form of the classic arcade games he once excelled at playing. Naturally, Sandler's best friend Kevin James has become President of the United States and calls on Sandler and Josh Gad and sworn enemy Peter Dinklage to repel the alien threat. So look, I went to the screening of Pixels with like a very small audience, but a passionate audience. Right. An audience passionate about their Sandler films. Uh, there weren't a ton of people there, but those that were all seemed to be seated in my vicinity. Like, I actually, when I sat down, I thought, like, a woman sat right beside me with her partner, and I thought, there are a lot of seats here. Could you not have, you know? Yeah. And I did think about moving, but then uh, I just couldn't be bothered and the film was going to start. Uh, and look, she could barely contain herself. She practically <laughs> shook with laughter the entire film. Um, she even laughed at the Happy Madison logo that came up. She, oh, she right. like, giggled audibly. Because that. That, that, that just sent chills through my, yeah, my I body. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like watching um, the Ring video, you know? <laughs> but no, she thought it was just the funniest thing. And now it's like, oh, this is going to be a long film. <laughs> um, she was the most easily pleased viewer I think I've ever encountered in a cinema. Um, she enjoyed the film about as much as I did not enjoy it. Right, wow. Yeah. yeah. How was yours? Well, look, the first time I tried to watch this film. My first time you tried? The first time I tried to watch this film, my girlfriend Lachia and I were the only people in the cinema. Wow. And I felt bad for buying tickets in the first place, reminiscent of that scene in Taxi Driver where De Niro takes Sybil Shepherd to a porno theater. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to like hide the fact that I was, you know, like kind of, I'll have two tickets to fix them. Yeah. Oh, what was that? Two tickets for... Look, uh, there we were sitting completely alone in the movie theater. The audio came on and the ads were playing, but there was just no visuals. There was nothing on the screen. So I went to the usher, who then apologized and told me the screening had been canceled even though we just bought tickets like 10 minutes before. Oh, Cancelled because of lack of interest. Yeah. Wow. Literally, literally, the chair and I. So we received complimentary tickets, so eventually I got to see Pixels for free. Wow. Yeah. And uh, incredible. Yeah. That was I've great. never been to a screening that's been cancelled. Yeah, that was the uh, first time it's ever happened to me. Yeah. And uh, my girlfriend turned to me and said, you should be a good sign. Yeah, probably, <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. Look, as I said before, we chose Pixels because uh, – and Adam Sandler film was the first film we ever reviewed. Uh, and that film, Just Go With It, was an aggressively terrible production. It was. I would have thought it said. One we tore into with some glee. Uh, but with Pixels, which is also pretty terrible, I've got to say. Mm. I find myself more saddened than anything else. <laughs> like, not, 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 not like keen to just, like, dismember a film, but just yeah. weary and disappointed. And even though I knew I'd be disappointed. Look, it's a bad Sandler film that doesn't manage to rise to that sort of inane levels of a really rubbish Sandler film. Mm. Um, instead, it's one of those lazy, tired films that coasts on its star's schlubby, non-charisma and overly familiar Sandler tropes. And I don't think I've ever seen him coast so much during a film. Right, that's saying something because I've seen he's coasts a lot. Oh, I think this this whole film is a, just, uh, yeah. you know, there's so little energy to it. Yeah. Look, I initially reviewed this in my mind almost as I was watching it through the prism of spoiler alerts, traumatic birth, like a baby taking oxygen into its lungs for the first time. We were struck by the overpowering awfulness of Just Go With It on our first mm. podcast. And things for Sandler haven't improved much since then. On the other hand, Pixels is nothing on the scale of 2010's rom-com. It has a narrative and not too many annoying characters or dubious morality played off as hijinks. Although the less said about the implications of turning a trophy into a woman as a prize for a sex-starved nerd, the better. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Look, this isn't a film that likes women. Oh, no. Uh, there's only one other speaking female role beside um, the love interest, and I'll get to that in a minute. And that's the shrieking British Prime Minister who's the butt of an ugly joke, essentially. That's, yeah. that's the reason she exists. Other than that, we've got eye candy, including, as you say, an alien computer avatar that transforms into a sexy mute warrior uh, so that she can be Ludlow's fantasies come true. Yeah. Um, because all the guys in this film had their sexual fantasies fulfilled. You know, it's, it's that sort of film. <laughs> it is that sort of film. Yeah. Na look, as I said, naturally, Sandler has a love interest, Violet, a gorgeous, intelligent, wealthy single mother whose only flaw is she seems to think she's out of his league. 
or snobby as he keeps reminding her. Thing is, she is out of his league. Yeah. He is so he doesn't deserve her. Yeah. Uh, it's entirely fair for her to think that. Um, Sandler's only skill is that he was once good at video games. Mm. He's not strikingly good looking unless you love schlubby man children, and his wit is pretty grating. Uh, yet Pixels, the film, thinks he's amazing. Yeah. You know, thinks he's awesome. His character arc is essentially him coming to the realization that, you know what? I am awesome after all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of the world going, you know what? This guy is pretty awesome. That's the arc. And look, conveniently, Violet is a colonel and is forced to work with Brenner, and Brenner being Santa's character, oh, that's his name. and his buddy. Sorry? That's his name. Oh yeah, yeah. Who, as we said earlier, is the president of the United States. Oh, look. The fact Kevin James is president is singularly depressing. And the fact he can't spell doesn't help. And uh, it's kind of tied into an anti-intellectualism streak that runs throughout the film. Mm. To defeat the aliens, he shouldn't focus on structure and patterns, but pure instinct. They even managed to turn one of the greatest tennis players of all times into a shallow gold digger as well. I'll just, you know, yeah. uh, without giving too much away in the cameo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michelle Monaghan is the only one who even slightly shines in this, I actually thought. And she's far too good for this material. And yet she is a trophy to be reached by Sandler too. And her son is a cipher, a child wise beyond Yoda's years, who from the opening scene encourages a schlub like Sandler uh, to hit on his emotionally fragile, hard-drinking mother who is freshly single. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, there's no one. I mean, th this whole film smacks of laziness. So while the visual elements are impressive, there's a, like a lifelessness to the whole endeavor. Yeah. Yeah, look, the pacing's a mess for me as well because, mm. as you said, the alien attack scenes are often cool to look at. The sections in between that are long, flat, and dull. I don't really need to see Sandler Boer, a pretty girl he doesn't deserve by just being a jerk. Mm. Uh, and it's just sad to watch Brian Cox and Sean Bean just oh. in just these broad cameos, you know? That's soul-crushing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially Brian Cox. He's especially Brian Cox, yeah. actually, because Sean Bean's short enough for me to just yeah, yeah deal with it. Yeah. Um, so, look... To be fair to the film, I managed a couple of laughs. Mm -hmm. I, th I think I've got to acknowledge that. Okay. Uh, all, mostly because of Josh Gad's Ludlow, a character who mm. would be played by Zach Galifianakis if this was a better film. Mm. Uh, and those were laughs of shock, you know, more than anything yeah. else. You know what I mean? That's right. Uh, so hearing him yell at muscle-bound soldiers, describing one as a Nubian, um, which I, yeah. I thought was pretty fun, calling another one a female maggot and then getting corrected by Sandler. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I got a laugh out of that. But most jokes are kind of misguided. Yeah. Um, there's a moment that got a legitimate, genuine laugh out of me. At the end, when the aliens have been defeated, oh, spoiler alert, the aliens are defeated by what? that. Yeah, sorry about that. And Ludlow's CG girlfriend is whisked away because she was a video game creature as well. Mm. And we're left with one remaining video game character, their buddy Q-Bird. Mm. And I like that. I like the unfairness of that. <laughs> but that was quick, quickly subverted when Q-Bird right. transformed into his beautiful, <laughs> um, his beautiful girlfriend. I like the fact that in the moment the film made no sense in a way that actually hurt one of its characters. Yeah. I thought that was kind of mean-spirited and fun. And so when Q-Bird transformed, transforms into Ludlow's love interest, you've got this potentially funny idea that Ludlow is now hooking up with Kubert, you know? Uh, which is kind of funny, except that Sandler has to actually put a state that for the audience who are, yeah. I guess, too stupid to guess yeah. what's happened. And I kind of, you know, it's the way these jokes are just butchered. Yeah. Dinklage's character draws inspiration from the King of Kong's hissable real-life cad, Billy Mitchell. Mullet, swagger, smarmy grin, and put-downs. You think Dinklage was the best performer, but naturally Pixels manages to make Peter Dinklage unfunny, which is shocking in itself. So for me, it was Josh Gad as well. He was by mm. far um, mm. the one that managed to get a couple of laughs, if only for his conspiracy theories and occasional non sequiturs. But like, why on earth would you book someone with the comedic ability of 30 Rock's Jane Krakowski and literally give her five humorless lines? Yeah, I mean, totally. she's a super talented comedian. Yeah, yeah, she's got nothing to nothing. do. I'm like, you could have put anyone in that. She might as well not say anything. Uh, in the first scene she's in, she visually says, like, one line or something. Yep, totally wasted. Oh, horrific. Um, and in fairness, Pixels has what I thought was one standout sequence, which was the Pac-Man chase. I thought that um, that scene hums along, has a sense of jeopardy and stakes, and it's a pretty good climax as well. Uh, it's such a shame that the others don't. The opening battle is devoid of requisite tension, all the more drained because Sandler's character just seems completely unchallenged by the attackers. Mm. Uh, especially a montage sense set to a, like a nonsensical upbeat track like Working for the Weekend. Like, even thematically, that makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, why Working for the Weekend? Like, it's not e – why don't you use Take On Me or something? Like, wouldn't you use something that has something to do with battle or something? Like, everyone's working for the weekend? Like, what? Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, 
and this goes into like uh, I found, and this is a minor, minor thing in a whole lot of, but just to lighten the mood because we're talking about some pretty, you know, kind of bankrupt things in here. <laughs> but uh, the 1982 reference date was a real sticking point for me because we're both ch- children of the 80s, you know. Yeah, I know what you're saying here. Look, Max Headroom didn't exist then. No. Madonna wasn't a star until at least two years later. Yep. And many of the games of Salt and the Earth hadn't even been created. Yep. And in fact, it is kind of a perf- perfect metaphor for everything that's irksome about Sandler's lazy 80s nostalgia. He doesn't seem to care what actually happened. Like, he must be aware of all of this. And he's like, oh, who cares? Doesn't yep. matter. It was the 80s. It's all kind of the same. Kind of, no. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, no, the 80s references are all up the show. They were just yeah. completely all over the place. And, and, and also, like, even I'm not a, a, a gaming guy. Gaming is massive now. It's huge. And this idea like it's some kind of archaic thing that was back in the 80s. Oh, don't worry about it, kid. It was 30 years ago. You won't understand. It's like, no. The gaming, games have have outstripped movies now. Like they're, they're totally. The maximum form of entertainment. I mean, go to Japan or go to anywhere. Go to the, the States. You're in the States. Like, <laughs> they have, oh, it just blew my mind. I was like, yeah. I'm not a gamer, but I'm well aware of how much yeah. the gaming exploding has exploded. And then suddenly it's like, wow, you know. Only Adam Sandler could save the day. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it reminds me of something else too. That I, I listened to. I was listening to another podcast recently. Wish I could remember which one it was, so I could give them a proper um, reference. But they were talking about characters who have inexplicable skills. I like the protagonist of the film, The Kingsman, who is never shown receiving like this superhuman martial arts abilities, but has them when they're required anyway. You know, or Hit Girl in Kickass, who can fling around muscle bound henchmen like no one's business, yet was trained by Nick Cage seemingly only in gunplay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's just assumed that she has those skills. Yeah. Uh, likewise, Sam and Ludlow shoot guns, drive cars, and smash and leap over barrels just because they could do these things with a joystick in a video game. Yeah, the car Which, one especially. That yeah, really stood one. out. Because there's a point where he reverses like up through like three or four different... That looks really difficult. Yeah, three or four different like. What's that could do with playing Pac-Man? Yeah, I was like, this is outstanding. That makes no sense. Surely they'd be better off actually having trained drivers yeah. and them just like, you know, on walkie-talkies saying, you know, turn left, turn right, and, you know, mm. you've got 10 seconds to do this. Because mm. that would make a lot more sense. Yeah. They're the video game experts. They're not actually driving experts. <laughs> yeah. And they've got all these military guys shooting guns inefficiently because Sandler and his buddy can do it better. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Also, how does Dinklage's cheat codes work? Yeah. Like he has these cheat codes that allow him to as many to like teleport around New York. Yeah. That's not possible. No. That makes no sense at all. Um, how does this car leap through time just because he's got cheat codes? Mm. Uh, also, this is the only game where the humans are the bad guys and the alien is the is the hero. I'm Pac-Man. I assume is always the hero yeah. these days. I assume that's because they had many Coopers and they needed to use them. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, yeah. You'd think it would probably be better, actually, if it was Sandler in the middle of his Pac-Man and three bag, three or four bag yeah, ghosts t- chasing yeah, after yeah, him. Yeah, 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 except the, the script. These are things you think about when a film's not great. Yeah. You yeah. know. But it, it, it's, it's like the poster, you know, the poster I came out, I looked, looked at the poster, and it's Pac-Man, like, chomping up things in San Francisco. I'm like, none of this takes place in San Francisco. Yeah, it's in New York, yeah. <laughs> so you're not even consistent in your own film. This is because San Francisco is the modern city to destroy. Yeah. You know, because you got a Golden Gate Bridge, but I'm like, you could have put the Statue of Liberty there. What does it matter? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Um, but you know, like Godzilla, Star Trek Into Darkness, like I said, just watch. Yeah, just always with the Frisco. It's also kind of awkwardly aimed at a near non-existent middle demographic. It's it's not childlike. Instead, it's quite touched with jaded cynicism and obsessed with lady parts. As we said, as we said, it's adolescent but not fresh, witty or smart, and it doesn't have a shred of orig- originality in its narrative to surprise any adult. In one scene, Sandler dresses down the U.S. war room, making fun of the elderly and young because only 40-somethings possess the perfect blend of experience and open mind to win the day. It also blames, as you said, Sandler's lifetime of underachieving on Dinklage's character, cheating when they were kids. And, of course, Sandler was the champ. He couldn't possibly just be good. He must be the best. Yeah, I know. I know. And, in fact, he was the champ at two of the games they played. Yeah. So, you know, he was like the world... Uh, Centipede champion and the world um, Pac-Man yeah. champion or something. Yeah. So what, what's your problem, man? Yeah. But also, the, at the end of it, it's like, oh, Donkey Kong is the final challenge, which is the one that Dinklage won. Yeah. And then Kevin James goes, oh, the one game you suck at. And it's like, he doesn't suck at it. He came second in the world champs, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like going, it's like going to, like, you know, Olympic Christie. Like, oh, you suck because you're going, like, you know, you can yeah. you silver medal at the Olympics in the 100 meters. Yeah, yeah. Like, you what? suck at the relay, Olympic. <laughs> Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that? no, that makes no sense. But like I say, uh, 
the, the point of his character is that he is actually awesome. Yeah. You know, and we just should accept that. Yeah. W- when he doesn't actually display anything that, you know. No. Because they're like, oh, don't worry, you still... When he's a kid, they'll go, they go, oh, don't worry, you still go to MIT. But mm. why? Because he's got Donkey Kong? Yeah, how does that work out? Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, he's just, like, super smart. But he doesn't display any of that super smart later on. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Pixels is the film that seeps into your consciousness in the worst possible way. Uh, it's kind of a wish fulfillment of a terrible kind. The geek haven't inherited the earth. The stupid have. It's kind of like idiocracy, except the idiots are the heroes. And But moral questioning aside, the film just isn't funny. Uh, but it's also not cringe-inducing. It just, as you say, it fell flat for me. Mm. And that was the problem. And, th- and this sentiment you goes back to circle round, back to what you opened with. In my screening, when I eventually did go see this film, because I did have to go for a second yep. attempt, um, you know, th- this sentiment was echoed, or should I say not echoed, because it was quite silent. There was a few people in the cinema the second time when I saw it. The second time I managed to see it, I didn't see it see twice. Um, it, it, people sim- simply didn't laugh. They were kind of just waiting f- to get through to the next scene, like a, a, a plane's holding pattern over an airport, coasting on fumes and praying they wouldn't have a crash landing. Um, and it's interesting, you know, like w- we talk about the plot at the top, and it actually occurred to me, once you explain the plot, the premise, there really is nothing else that happens in that film. Like even narratively, nothing else occurs mm. in that film. Yeah. You know, you could just explain the plot as I as I did at the top, and that's basically exactly what happens. Yeah, there's no real other surprises. So yeah, so uh, it's an interesting one to go back and and uh, go back to a Sandler film because I don't think I've seen a Sandler film since 2010. I saw Funny People, but I think I may have seen that before. No, I saw Funny People afterwards, so that's the only Sandler film. So I've seen a good Sandler film since yeah. um, 2010, and that's the only one I've seen. Yeah. So yeah. Lucky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just surprised there's one out there that was. You were jealous that your husband was stopping her. That, that's why you killed him, too. Yes. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. And now we're on to the top five. Look, I love me some gaming, from card games to board games to video games. I was a wizard, Attic Attack, and Jet Set Willy on the Spectrum 48K. I do enjoy a dip into FIFA football games or Elder Scrolls World on the PlayStation. And while there are some potentially decent films waiting to emerge from your favourite games, heart-stopping medical drama Operation, or the ultra-violent crank-like Grand Theft Auto, they've even turned one of my childhood faves, Cluedo, into a unique, silly film starring Tim Curry, Michael McKean as Reverend Green, Christopher Lloyd as Pre- Professor Plum, and an inspired Madeline Kahn. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but considering it was made in 1986, it predates the rash of video game ripoffs that have dominated the last 10 years of movie making. But more often than not, qualities that make a game entertaining are at odds with what makes cinema entertaining. So here are five great games that were turned into bad films. The first ever live-action video game adaptation set the tone for the adaptations to follow. In other words, it's absolute rubbish. Uh, that film was, of course, 1993's Super Mario Brothers. Oh, I'm yeah. surprised that made on the list. Really? <laughs> As the first video game adaptation, it was also the first film to face the problem of giving some sort of backstory and world building to an entertainment based on making little men run around and jump over things. Uh, needless to say, Super Mario Brothers does so pretty terribly. It's all got something to do with alternate universes and hyper-evolved dinosaurs and Bob Hoskins and John... Leguizamo is the Miro brothers, who just don't jump enough for my liking. Mm. Uh, also, they don't wear their spiffy matching red and green overalls enough either. That sort of comes yeah, in. That's, a, that's a travesty. Yeah, it comes that's, in really that's like That's like Judge Redden wearing the helmet in Stallone film. It totally it? is. Yeah. Um, Dennis Hopper embarrasses himself as well as the villainous King Cooper. The ruler of a world is dark and depressing as the actual Mario worlds are bright and engaging. I mean, I don't know how they got that so wrong as well. Uh, apparently, the leads drunk their way through the production. Mm-hmm. Just, just flat out drunk pretty much every day. <laughs> and I can't blame them. I drank myself through the viewing. <laughs> I love that you say Dennis Hopper embarrassed himself. I mean, here's a man who was just like found in like in South America stumbling through, you know, the the forest like naked, like high on cocaine and alcohol. And it's like, but now he truly embarrasses himself. That was dignified in comparison. <laughs> I've never seen Super Mario Brothers, but it is legendarily bad. So. Yeah, no, I remember the screening well because of my, my cousin was getting married the next day. Nice. And so we just had a couple of beers and watched Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his last day as a free man. There you go. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
written by Pulp Fiction co-writer Roger Avery and directed by Christopher Garns, who made spoiler alert favorite Brotherhood of the Wolf. Love that film. Love that film. Silent Hill should have been great. Instead, it is a perfect example of why interpreting atmospheric games should be avoided. Silent Hill was a creepy game. I really enjoyed playing it. Full of nightmarish images as a woman searches for her lost daughter in an eerie town covered in a dusk light and permanent mist. When the game was released, it was a genre-changing work. It was a really exceptional piece of survival horror that resonates to this day. It still has quite a lot of influence. Similarly, I hope the failings of the film adaptation remind people why to never attempt this again. Hallucinogenic visuals and drawn-out puzzle solving are enjoyable as an immersive experience, but as a piece of cinema, they're torturous, laughable, and confusing. And random, counterintuitive character behavior is kind of acceptable in a game. Actually, the more you look at it, the more games do that. But you kind of just deal with it in a game because it puts your character in dangerous situations to escape or react to. But when watching someone do that on screen, it is infuriating. It all looks good, though. It's very nicely shot. And perhaps this is the film's problem. It adheres too faithfully to the game, because of the, but because of the different medium, its substantial flaws disproportionately outweigh its superficial highs. So it was a, it's a shame that, because it's a really good game to play. But when yeah, you so watch it, it's nonsensical. It's, it's a, as you say, it is a really stylish film, though. I remember yeah. thinking it looked... Not great's probably too strong, but look good. Yeah, you know, look solid. But it's yeah. a mess of a film. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, we talked about this before, though. The fact that you're going after Silent Hill suggests to me that you and I haven't watched nearly enough video game movie <laughs> adaptations. I mean, neither of us. I th- I imagine neither of us have watched a UA Bowl. No, well, that's the thing. I mean, when you when you look into those, I I've never gone to a UA Bowl movie. Yeah. Why, why would I watch Dungeon Siege? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a uh, because I know that it's going to be bad. Silent Hill, I think, was probably my first attempt at watching something because I liked yeah. I think that and Resident Evil are the only two games right. that I've really watched because I, I like the games. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and so I was kind of vastly disappointed in both of them. Yeah. Uh, and really, I think maybe Silent Hill's problem is because it is almost too faithful in some way. Right. Um, but like I say, visually it looks great. Christopher Gantz sure knows how to make, you know, creepy visuals and, you know, yeah. smoky yeah. vistas work. As we've seen, Brotherhood of the Wolf, but yeah, it's, it's such a disappointing film because it it kind of makes no sense, and then the end of it has this twist, and you're just like, well, that doesn't satisfy me either. Yeah, for me, the benchmark for bad video game movies is 1994's Street Fighter, a film I paid hard-earned cabbage to see in an actual cinema, wow. like an actual building devoted to showing movies like Street Fighter. <laughs> That's right, folks. I paid real folding cash to watch a movie based on a button-mashing console that starred Jean-Claude Van Damme and locomotion singer Kylie Minogue. <laughs> uh, proving that the real subject of this top five beatdown shouldn't be the films themselves, but clearly should be my cinematic lack of taste. Mm. In my defense, Street Fighter was written and directed by Stephen D'Souza, the man who wrote 48 Hours and Die Hard. Uh, also Hudson Hawk, but I didn't know that at the time. Okay. <laughs> and Van Damme was coming off of Universal Soldier and Hard Target, two of the biggest films of his career. Surely I had reason to be optimistic, especially when you add in screen engine Raw Julia in its final performance. Mm. Final performance. This film was dedicated to Raw Julia. <laughs> Obviously, there's a wealth of terrible f- things about this film, but I'm going to kind of corral my eyes so I can target it laser-like at what I consider its two main failings. Firstly, shockingly, Stephen D'Souza seems not to be all that familiar with the game. Like all beat-em-up video games, Street Fighter the game is a little light on plot, uh, but it's pretty obvious that there's some sort of martial arty tournament thing going on. Mm-hmm. Fighting tournaments are kind of a mainstay of martial arts movies, from Enter the Dragon through to Van Damme's own breakthrough uh, film Bloodsport. So why did D'Souza instead pen some sort of laborious international military meets James Bond villain plot? Mm. Especially when outside of the oversized roster of colourful characters, Street Fighter, the game's most fascinating innovation, was those lovely, uh, lovingly created backgrounds you fought in. Mm. You know, from Vegas strips to Indian temples, Brazilian backwaters to Japanese bathhouses. The smartest move would surely have been to make Street Fighter the movie a globe-trotting beat-em-up. Mm. Which leads me to my second gripe. All those colourful characters from the game are given dull, inaccurate screen versions. And so many of them. Surely if no one knew how to make a spiky-haired all-American fighter pilot guile into anything but a Belgian UN colonel with a noticeably not-spiked-up hairdo, <laughs> then what chance the overstuffed travesty of poorly realised supporting fighters that include a guy named Dalism who inexplicably is not a levitating Indian guru with telescopic arms. <laughs> I loved playing that guy out. He, yeah. was my, he was my go-to in Street Fighter. So I was pretty annoyed by that. 
uh, there's an Hawaiian named E Honda who obviously is not a Japanese sumo champion, but in fact some sort of camera guy or something, I think, or an, you know, a boom operator. And almost no one does their special moves either, which is infuriating. That is. In the end, the most interesting thing about Street Fighter is the wild stories of onset madness, uh, Van Damme's diva-like behavior and coke habit, apparently. All right. Uh, and his recent revelation of his affair with Minogue that happened on set. Oh, right. Which I guess means we weren't the only ones getting screwed because of this film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's terrible. There's actually a really good article um, listing, talking through and interviewing some of the people involved and just talking really? about all the problems that happened with the production. Wow. From like Capcom interfering and consistently wanting more characters added, having, because of censorship, having to lose a lot of material and just right. dull it down. And apparently that's the reasons they don't have their finishing moves. Really? Yeah. Like, that's a shame. And they ran out of like effects time to do like fireballs and stuff, so they just yeah. dropped them. Ah, it's a mess. But I might post that to um, the spoiler because it was a really good read, actually. Oh, that's great. I, uh, yeah, I, I haven't seen Street Fighter. Right. Yeah. So that didn't make my list because I just was like, nah, I'm never that big a fan of Street you Fighter. You never need to see it. No, no. <laughs> you don't. And it killed Raul Julia, which is that's crime in itself. Well, I mean, that was part of the problem, too, because apparently he showed up on the first day and they were, they were going to shoot, uh, I think they were going to shoot some combat stuff with him quite soon, mm. and he just wasn't well enough. Right. He was really sick, and they had to... Like shoot a lot of distant stuff with him and stuff around him until he got a little bit of health back. Right. Um, but no, he was. He, yeah, this was. He died after this film. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's sad. What kind of uh, goes into my second film, and which is similar to Street Fighter, and, and one really shouldn't be surprised that Mortal Kombat the movie is rubbish. It is ostensibly a straightforward punch him up game, but what a punch him up game! If only for one vital aspect, the fatalities. Press a special combination of buttons and you would unleash a death move that was spectacular in its design and execution. Ripping out spines, frying people alive, turning them into babies, making them explode. It was a unique development that single-handedly changed fighting games forever. Uh, but for me, it was the sole reason to play Mortal Kombat and the sole reason I was disappointed in the film. Yes, the movie was awful, has awful dialogue, the plot's incomprehensible, the acting not just sub-zero but also sub-par. Hey! hey. And topped off with one of the most grating soundtracks known to man. But I don't care. But no high gore fatalities. I ask you, what is the point? What is the point? And Mortal Kombat yeah. begs that question. I was like, I want to see no, no, dudes' no. spines ripped out. That's, like, no, what you're saying is perfect. Again, it's just... The yeah. hero of that film, essentially, is ripping people's spines out and they don't do it. Yeah, no, you're right. Could you really turn someone into a baby? Yeah, you could do that. And what happened when they became a baby? Oh, that was like just... They just Oh, that's no. disappointing to me. Yeah, you couldn't like then rip the baby's spine. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But you could, you could, you could turn into an animal and kill people as well. Yeah, no, and, no, and, and you could to death. freeze them and then shatter them. And, yeah, freeze oh, them. Oh man, there were so many cool things. It was great. And Mortal Kombat just stacked them on top of each other, like especially the first three. Yeah, I kind of checked out after that, but the first bit of Mortal Kombat two was particularly good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it really did. I think Mortal Kombat came out like ninety two or something, like the the mm. video game. Yeah, and this. Film came out like ninety five or something, right? But that was right in the height, and that was uh, yeah, yeah. Fun. They all came out quite quick because you notice I talk about Mario Brothers being the first. Yeah, it was ninety three. Street yeah. Fighter was ninety four, and then Mortal Kombat ninety five. Yeah, so they must have been all been looking at each other and going, "Wow, this is not a good business move. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going well for us." You're right about the soundtrack too. Just you know, and whenever they had a fight scene, that Mortal Kombat song would start. Yeah, yeah. you know that song that like everyone who's done like a um, an aerobics performance yeah, has had to yeah, listen to. Yeah, like high energy. Like yeah, and 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 the words Mortal Kombat. Just yeah. like dun, 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 Mortal Kombat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who yells the title of the film during the? It's like I mean, you didn't see that during Inception. Inception. <laughs> yeah, that would have been good though if they had done that. Yeah, totally. Inception. Shutter Island. <laughs> There will be blood. <laughs> hey, so remember that time that I said that Street Fighter was the worst video game movie of them all? Do you remember oh, that? Oh, that was like about um, 45 seconds ago. It, yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, it was, you know, right up until someone decided to make a, a sequel called Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. <laughs> like the first Street Fighter, the plot is a hot mess that once again sidesteps the potential of a kick-ass tournament. Again, this time in favour of something to do with gangsters and sinister real estate deals because if Lethal Weapon has taught us anything... <laughs> Is that real estate is proper scary cinematic evil yeah. evil stuff. You know, that's that's what freaks us out. Again, the issue is characters and what the film does wrong with them. Chun Li is the least Chinese looking Chinese person since Boris Karloff played Fu Manchu, which I guess is because her mother is clearly European. 
also, as her unconvincing death from my shoe cancer suggests, I'm not. I'm not sure what she died of. Um, right. She may actually be younger than Chun Li. Okay. He is actually the youngest, most beautiful-looking um, cancer victim, who has a daughter who must be at least twenty-four. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it makes no sense. But in flashbacks to her youth, Chun Li is actually way more Chinese looking. Like she had a Chinese girl playing her as a child, and right. then she grew up to be a European girl just with like pigtails. You know. <laughs> Also, she's a concert pianist with some like childhood kung fu training. So why she's able to bust out such a full-on acrobatics martial arts moves is kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, she's received some basic education, but anyway, Bison is once again the bad guy. This time played by go-to villainous bad guy Neil McDonough, who looks and acts nothing like the game version. He's basically just a dude in a suit. You know, yeah. Uh, he's a Scottish gangster. Well, his accent is occasionally Scottish. It's variable. <laughs> Orphaned in Hong Kong and raised to villainy in the mean streets, but still with the accent, because I guess accents are genetic, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's some confusion guff about him magically removing all his goodness and placing it in his one weakness, his daughter. It's not important, mm-hmm. and so I don't know why the film devotes time to it, and it certainly doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. but this doesn't matter. Worse than all this is Charlie Nash, the hard-boiled cop on Bison's Tale, played by Chris Klein, <laughs> uh, a man best suited to playing goofy, low-IQ likability, not rugged street smarts. Uh, he's the worst cop as well, by the way. He's been chasing Bison for like four years. Uh, yet Chun Li goes to an internet cafe and tracks him down in moments. It's like Nash apparently hasn't heard of computers. <laughs> the internet's kind of a mystery to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He just drives around in cars, looks kind of tries to look brooding. Yeah. Um, at first I thought watching Klein was like seeing Keanu Reeves play at being Dirty Harry. But I saw John Wick this month. So I know Keanu can do tough. What this is actually more like watching is watching... Keanu Reeves as Ted Logan, his character from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, as Dirty Harry. <laughs> if you can imagine such a thing, that's what Klein's doing. Whoa, did I shoot five times or did I shoot six times? To- it's totally that. <laughs> it is absolutely that. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now it's up to our favourite part of the show, the tree of woe, where we get to punish a cinematic offender on uh, the tree of woe from the film Conan the Barbarian, uh, which you should have seen. Come right. on. Yeah. So, um, Duncan, who are you going to punish? Uh, who, who's, whose flesh will be torn apart <laughs> by vultures on the Tree of Woe? Well, look, uh, I've, it's, it's kind of a cannibalistic uh, Tree of Woe this, this month for me because I'm going after my own kind. Uh, on the eve of the release of Spectre, something has happened over the last few months. A race debate on whether Bond should be black, then whether he should be gay, then whether he should be a woman. All of this seems to stem from journalists asking random questions designed to get a headline-grabbing response and start a fiery debate in the comments section, which is always, appropriately, at the very bottom of the page because it's the internet's equivalent of hell. Here you will find the hive and scum of villainy discussing these things. And I'm a huge Bond fan, and I'm not blinded to the author's prejudices, the series' inherent sexism, and the general silliness of the whole thing. But you can watch a film like Gold, Goldfinger and revel in its coolness, as well as be a, appalled at its archaic attitude towards women. It is possible to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at once. Uh, if it wasn't, it would be impossible to enjoy a Tom Cruise film without cognitive dissonance. But this latest debate simply won't go away, and often inflamed by people who should know better. And as a Bond fan, I'm equally disgusted by some of my fellow Bond fans. But I also shouldn't be surprised, because just 10 years ago, they couldn't conceive of a blonde Bond. Uh, famously starting up craigisnotbond.com and lambasting Casino Royale upon release, even in the face of universal acclaim that it was one of the finest Bond films ever. So the fact that a faction can't deal with Blonde Bond, then Black Bond is really going to rile them up. But for what reason? Why should it be so bad to have a Black James Bond or a Gay James Bond or a Female James Bond or a Transgender James Bond? It will either succeed or not on the basis of the narrative and the action and the coolness. It's the coolness that makes 007. And even if you think these things, is it worth making memes and starting flame wars and opening websites? So gentlemen, and I am talking to a majority of men in the Bond fandom world, put down the keyboard, turn off the caps lock, and try to remain cool, as cool as your hero, because otherwise you'll end up on woe, the tree of woe. Yeah, no, fair points indeed, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of sad. And I know that Pierce Brosnan was asked, um, and suddenly just... People were just asking him questions, and it was kind of like, and it was all spread around as like, Pierce Brosnan thinks that the next James Bond should be gay, and I'm sure it was just some journalist who was going, what do you think about a gay James Bond? He's like, yeah, fine. Yeah. And then suddenly that turns into this, you know, yeah, Pierce has, you know, got an agenda. Yeah. Liberal Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then, but it, uh, that's not so much of a problem, it's a journalist's job to 
get that. Yeah, that's but right. And uh, who, who's the guy who's currently writing James Bond novels who said that Elba was too street? Yeah, Anthony Horowitz said yeah. uh, he's an interesting character because he he's a prolific writer. Yeah, totally. And um, But he also went after all the other writers who had tried to um, – he basically said none of the other guys got Ian Fleming like I got him mm. before his book had even been released or reviewed. Wow. And it seems like a – why would you do that? Because you're going after like – some, you know, William Boyd, or especially Sebastian Fawkes, mm. Jeffrey Diva, you know, they're like actual, you know, established crime writers mm. and they're quite, you know, not hacks, mm. they're actually talented writers. It seemed like a strange thing to do. Yeah, and then he went, oh, Idris Elba's too street. And then people were talking about Tom Hardy. And I'm like, well, if, if Idris Elba's too street. Then yeah, <laughs> how, how can how can he be more street than Hardy? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's a strange one, and it's just one of those things of, like, yeah. really, come on, guys, like, let's just move on. Mm. But what infuriates me is that it's not um, uh, it's not angry teenagers writing about this. That You know, a lot of the Bond fans tend to be older people, yeah. you know, my age and older, some yeah. of them. And I'm like, really, you, sh- you guys shouldn't be getting angry about this. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, should yeah. be 50 and getting, like, fired up because James Bond might be black. Yeah. That seems... Uh, it just makes me a little ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I've got to ask a question. Why did we even have Pixels, the movie? Why does this stupid film exist? It exists because in 2010, a French director made a quirky, charming short film in which 8-bit video game characters escape their TV tubes and run riot through New York. It's a delightful little bit of experimentation that I encourage you to head on over to Vimeo and watch. Uh, but it's also entirely plot-free, and hence a terrible candidate for being turned into a film. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've evidenced. <laughs> also, all the best bits of Pixels uh, you'll find in the short film, by the way. Really? Yeah. Uh, the Tetris thing, which I loved, was in it. Yeah. Yeah, you know. And obviously, that means Adam Sandler must have been in this because you would have loved it. Oh, look, moving along. <laughs> the thing is, Pixels is hardly an isolated example. It's a wealth of what you call proof-of-concept short films, shorts that are all CGI and some high-concept visuals that are convincing people to just hurl money at them. The first one that grabbed my attention was the flying whale hunting sci-fi short Leviathan. I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, that's really all you need to know about it because <laughs> that's as much plot as you're going to get. Uh, the other thing you need to know about Leviathan is that it's been picked up by X-Men producer Simon Kinberg. And then there's Evil Dead director Fede uh, Alvarez who got that gig on the back of his short, his very short, short Panic Attack. And far, far more recently I saw a film called The Garden, a CGI-laden high-concept short has been picked up by Warners with your eyes on a fantasy franchise. Now, the thing is, the garden is kind of what you'd call not very good, mm-hmm. you know? It's cheesy, it's clunky, and the twist, which is obviously what's hooked them in, is, is kind of obvious. Right. Yet here we go again. Another proof of concept trumps good screenwriting and, and well-crafted narrative. And I don't know what's driving it. Is it that people calling the shots can see that the people behind these shorts can handle effects. Mm. And so I know that they'll be good for the effects-heavy requirements of modern blockbusters. They seem like the sort of malleable talents who can do what they're told to squeeze out the next superhero sequel. Maybe, but to me it's a terrible way to find new filmmakers and develop fresh screenplays. Mm. Uh, but that's okay, because I've got a proof of concept that involves a CGI tree and some CGI vultures feasting on your next stupid short film about alien gods and space whales. <laughs> uh, yeah, is it? But it goes back to that thing of like, uh, Pixels has made a lot of money, and what the Pixels is it? Yeah. Oh, that's disappointing to me. Yeah, not not truckloads, but it's no, made no, enough no, no, no. for it to, um, you know, Pixels too. Yeah, Pixels too. But it comes into that thing of like, you know, Sandler's going to shrug his shoulders and go, "Well, I just made the studio a bunch of money," because I keep coming back to something like, you know, like Lego Movie or or Inside Out, mm-hmm. Pixar guys. If I was a producer, okay, let's grab those guys or let's have at least have a chat to these guys and see yeah, how yeah. they come up with these worlds because they're dealing with, on the surface, what looks like is appealing to children, is appealing to adults, mm. it's everything. That's why I was so confused by Pixels. I was like, who is this aimed at? I don't get it. Mm. It doesn't seem to be aimed at this non-existent demographic. I don't <laughs> get it. Was it aimed at that girl sitting beside me in the <laughs> cinema? <laughs> spoiler alert. And that's uh, Spoiler Alert episode 47 for this month. Uh, happy fifth anniversary, Simon. Yeah, happy fifth to you too. Yeah, it's been a long road, but we've got there. Yeah, We're going yeah. up to the fifty. Five soon. more years, eh? Five more years. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll be able to review Pixels two and three in that time. Yeah. Well, he's hoping, hey. Yeah. 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 What was your favorite film that you saw, apart from Pixels? Obviously, what was your favorite film you saw this month? It was John Wick. 
John Wick. I yeah, must I, check it out. I, I really enjoyed John Wick. Uh, look, it was a lot of fun. It was it was brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did this cool thing about inventing this whole gangland like subculture. It was almost like the Hogwarts of, of violent <laughs> movies. You know, all the gangsters like uh, they had gold coins which they used, which was like currency in gang world, mm-hmm. and they had their own hotel and services. Like at one point, um, Wick wipes out about a dozen people who come to his house, and then he dials up and orders takeout for twelve. <laughs> and of course, these gangsters show up and clean his house and take away the bodies and pay some wow. gold coins. I love that world building. Uh, and Reeves is really great. You know, yeah. he has a scene early on, and you probably already know this. Uh, he's given this puppy, mm-hmm. uh, which becomes his this thing he's attached to, and he weeps over it. Um, just the fact that he and he totally sells that, and it's important he sells that. Yeah, you know, and he and he totally does. And of course, he sells being a badass as well. Nice. Uh, so no, I enjoyed the heck out of John Wick. Um, John Wick Two's coming. Oh, great. So yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, what about you? Uh, well, it's I really enjoyed Unity. The uh, documentary, I think that's um, one that's worth hunting out, mm. if only for that opening scene. I won't give anything away about it, but that opening scene's amazing. Um, but that might be, like say, a bit um, esoteric, mm-hmm. a little bit um, all over the place. So uh, for a straightforward one, I'd have to say Itu um, Mama Tambien, which yep. I thought was great. I mean, I'd heard a lot about it. I'd just never seen it. So uh, really masterfully done and one worth checking out. Great recommendation. Yep. And so... Um, We've also got the uh, Halloween night yes. coming up. Yeah, yep, that's right. End of October, 31st, Saturday night at Spoon TV yep. in Ponsonby. Okay, uh, So, four great films. Um, I'm wondering if I should give away some titles. Um, yeah, I think so. Why not? John Dies at the End. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that on the podcast before. Is that the first one, is it? Yeah, we're starting off that. Oh, that's a great John one. Dies at the End. And the good thing about John Dies at the End is it doesn't matter if you come uh, at the beginning of the film True. or an totally. hour into it, you'll probably be... It, it won't make any more sense. But I would advise coming at the, at the beginning, sorry, because I love the opening scene. Oh, I yeah. just t- I adored it so much. Yeah, no, no. Just, yeah, I'm being a little facetious because I really enjoyed that mm. film and that was a pick of mine for a month one time. I, that was yeah. highly original and it's... It's just so entertaining. Yeah, it's totally entertaining. It's kind of crazy, uh, you know, crazy messy, but done in such a great way. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then at eight, we've got The Uninvited, uh, the story of a killer cat that stows aboard a pleasure cruise yacht. Uh, the thing about this killer cat is it has inside it another killer cat yeah. that busts out and kills people. Uh, this killer cat seems to be bigger than the cat it's hiding inside. Yeah. It makes no sense. It's glorious and insane. I remember, um, I remember really seeing the trailer. I remember seeing the trailer for it. You showed me the trailer, mm. and um, it, it just ticked all the right boxes. It's got killer cats, and it's like the thing. Yeah, it's yeah, the cheapest thing ripoff you've ever seen, though. Yeah, but kind of all the more unnerving because it is a cheap knockoff. Mm. Like there's something about those effects back in the day. Yeah, which they're kind of quite creepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that one with an audience. And then we go on to ten, where we've got Blood for Dracula, Udo Kerr. Nice, Udo. Andy Warhol's Blood for Dracula. Uh, look, I love that film. It was one of my favourite uh, favorite Fright films of the last year. Uh, so glad to see it and really looking forward to sharing that with an audience. Can't wait. And then we go to Midnight and a film so wrong, I had to hide it at midnight. And I'm not even sure I should be showing it. Street Trash. Excellent. I can't yeah, wait. Beautiful, pristine Blu-ray copy for some reason as well. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It is just the trashiest of 80s New York uh, low-budget Horror films. Is this the same guy to Basket Case? No, it's not. No, 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 okay. no it's not. Although uh, the lead from Frankenhooker mm-hmm. is shows up in this film as well. You really? remember him? He's got that really distinctive accent. Yeah, um, and he plays a really bizarre character in this one as well. Excellent. Uh, well, I haven't seen the only one I've seen is John Dies at the End, so I haven't seen the other three. Oh, so great! I'm really looking forward to this. In for a treat. Can't wait. Okay, uh, and so. Uh, that's spoiler alert for this month. Thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, thanks for the five years of listening. Uh, join us on the Facebook page. We're always on there posting random stuff, and um, and we really enjoy when people post and you know show yeah, we us do. stuff we as do. well. Yeah, that's it's great. Really good. Um, and so the music we're going out to is <laughs> Mortal Kombat. Yeah, just the anthem for a million cheerleader routines, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as you said, you know, like it screams its own name. In the song, yeah, Also, as we discovered, there's a ten-hour mix on YouTube. <laughs> you can listen to this for ten for hours. For ten hours, yeah. Someone, someone's put it together for ten hours, um, unbroken mix, and, yep. uh, and and you know it, it's got over a million views, so, totally, which is quite incredible. Yeah, and uh, and and the comment section is worth reading. It's pretty yeah, hilarious. I'm going to go to sleep at night listening to it now. <laughs> Just leave it playing all night until I wake up in the morning. Uh, it's fantastic. So. Uh, 
yeah, we'll, we will leave you with Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. Choose your destiny. Flawless victory. Choose your destiny. Flawless victory. Did you hear? School's canceled today because Kurt and Ram killed themselves in a repressed homosexual suicide pact. No way!